Welcome to the Femtech Health Podcast. Today, we're joined by Dee Hartman, an international speaker, educator, and author specializing in women's health and sexuality. In this episode, we'll be exploring the fascinating world of pelvic pain and sexual health. Dee shares her journey and expertise in the field, discussing topics such as vulvar pain, sexual dysfunction, and the importance of pleasure in our lives. You're going to learn about the anatomy of the clitoris, the impact of trauma on sexual health, and the role of communication and vulnerability in intimate relationships. Get ready for an enlightening conversation that will challenge societal norms and empower you to embrace your own sexual well-being. All right, let's get started with today's show. I'm here today with Dee Hartman. Thanks, Dee, for being with us. Dee is an international speaker, an educator, an author on all things women's health and sexuality. She's founded four companies. She has her she had her own physical therapy practice in Chicago for over 27 years. She then founded the Center for Genital Health and Education. She has vulvalove.com and thepleasuremovement.com as well. She's devoted her life to pelvic pain and sexual health. She has also been a pioneer in her field uh, as a member, as a president, as a uh, part of the board of directors of the International Pelvic Pain Society, of the International Society of the Study of Vulvovaginal Disease, and the International Society for the Study of Women's Health, uh, Women's Sexual Health. She's also co-authored a book with her business partner, Elizabeth Wood, The Pleasure Prescription. It's a surprising approach to healing sexual pain, which helps women find a path from pain to pleasure. Welcome, Dee Hartman. I so appreciate you being here. I first met you at uh, the Combined Section Member Society, or I should say meeting, years ago, and you made such an imprint on my heart because I definitely feel like our country really needs to have more open conversations about sexual health and, of course, pleasure. You know, so oftentimes people think, oh, pleasure, oh, this is a bad thing. And there's such great joy and actually having pleasure in our life every day. And it comes from such little things and then all the way to sexual health. So thank you for being here. And just tell us a little bit about your journey first into this whole world of pelvic pain and sexual health. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, first of all, for having me. It's such an honor to be here. And, you know, I love I love talking about this this in agree with you 100% that we need to talk about it more and more, which is really my push right now. I have five children. They were all born in just under six years. Crazy things happened. I had, you know, primary primary C-section and then V-backs. Vulvar tear. I had a fourth degree tear. I had a forceps baby that was turned 180 degrees in the birth canal. All sorts of crazy things. Not working, obviously. So when I got the youngest in kindergarten, went back and decided to open a practice in women's health because I felt like I had learned so much just through my own experience and started taking continuing ed courses because I went to school in the dark ages and needed a lot of updating, which I was happy to get. And I had someone, I opened a practice and I had somebody come through my door complaining of vulvar pain through tears. She'd already had two surgeries. And she said, at the time, we were OBGYN physical therapists, not women's health PTs. And I said, well, let's, let's see what we can do. And that really began my journey from a clinical perspective. And 
near that time, I was at Combined Sections, our, our national physical therapy meeting. And there was a newsletter net there from the, from the National Vulvodynia Association. And in that newsletter was an article by Howard Glazer, who was a psychologist in New York City, who had found, who had pioneered with John Perry, quite interestingly, pelvic floor biofeedback, and he was using it for women with, with chronic vulvar pain. So our meetings were always in February. The first week in, in, the first week in March, I spent three days with Dr. Glazer in New York City and was totally hooked on treating women with chronic vulvar pain. I started in the world of biofeedback. I didn't stay there very long because as, as a physical therapist, as opposed to a psychologist, that was his only tool. And we as PTs have a myriad of tools and are much more holistic when we look at a woman, at any patient's problem, at anyone's problem. We look at everything that's going on, not just the presenting problem. So that's where I really began and got to go from there. Also, and I always like to give Howard credit, he was the one who introduced my introduction into the ISSVD, the International Society for the Study of Vulval Vaginal Diseases. It's not a very big international society, but very gutsy. And I have been a fellow there since 1995. And as a result, and as the only PT, I have had the true honor of being able to talk about what we do as physical therapists literally around the world. So I, I really always have to go all harken all the way back to, to Howard because that's really what gave me such, it was such a gift and it was such an honor to be able to be in that spot to talk about what we do as women's health PTs. I love that. That's amazing. So, you know, it's interesting how you used your own experience to sort of drive you in this direction. And I see that so much with so many of our women's health providers, whether they, you know, specialize in pelvic PT alone or, you know, kind of women throughout their whole lifespan. But it amazes me how many of them are using, you know, all of their own experiences, then their passion to kind of take them, you know, in that neighborhood. So mm -hmm. I, I love that. And I love how you're talking about a global vision when you look at a, women, a woman's health. Uh, will you explain a little bit more what you mean about that? The global view of women's health is is one that is is growing and changing in my brain day by day. Let me go back it, it, because I spent my practice my all my years in clinical practice specializing in chronic vulvar pain, and that so that's typically when I when I go and speak. That's obviously what I talk about. And since I closed my practice in 2017 and have gone forward, is when I've really been able to look further and further into the world of pleasure with my co-author and business partner, Elizabeth Wood, and talk more and more about functional sexuality, which has driven me to talk about things. And I've, you know, been, had the honor of being invited to international meetings to speak. I, I, I've spoken in a number of different countries. This year in particular was eye-opening. I spoke at the World Association for Sexual Health in Antalya, Turkey in November, did a workshop there. And also had three talks at the International Society for the Study of Sexual Medicine in Dubai. And yes, yes, I we did go to you know the yeah there to talk about sex. To the, so you know, my kids went crazy; they thought it was nuts that we were going there to talk about sex. But I'm I'm here to tell you that having grown up in the United States in this in this business, 
in seeing an approach of sex from around the world, it's very, very different. It's a, there's a big dichotomy with how the rest of the world talks about sex compared to, I'll say North America, because I think Canada is pretty much there with us. And for my, what I'm seeing, probably the UK, they're, they're kind of all in the mindset of discussing how do we fix sexual dysfunction. There's something wrong. There is a diagnosable dysfunction. We have a code for that. We need to treat it. And how can we treat that dysfunction? The rest of the world talks about sexual function and how to have good sexual function. I, 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 I don't even think I heard in either of the meeting in Turkey or the meeting in Dubai, anybody talking much about using hormones to treat sexual dysfunction. We, we, that's, that's what we do in the United States, basically. That's, that's the tool that's used more than anything. I think that we as physical therapists are coming on the scene and saying, hang on, hang on. We, as a profession, our job is to assess the body and see what's wrong, see what's causing whatever presenting problem is in front of us. So that when we look at sexual dysfunction, we can't treat the brain. We know what's going on in the brain. Well, we can treat the brain. We don't use drugs. We don't use surgery. We use the tools that we as PTs use all the time, and that's looking at the body to see how everything is impacting what's going on with sexual function. It's been a great journey. Lots of fun. It's amazing. I had a young woman who came in, D, who literally had to change jobs, and she uh, now was sitting in a different type of chair. She was a medical professional, and... Um, now she was sitting in this particular chair for longer procedures. And as we delved into more of the conversation, she it finally came out that, you know, her husband had changed jobs and um, she had more pressure because she had started this new job mm. and was more responsible suddenly for, you know, more of their money financially while he sort of changed in some of these things. And it was very interesting that suddenly she had this terrible, you know, vulvar pain that suddenly came out of nowhere. And she had never had any pain patterns like this ever in her life. And I, that psychosocial overload, right, to our physical well-being, we just don't always recognize, you know, the psychosocial play with all of it. And, and, you know, being a young woman who had never had any pain with intercourse or never had any pain with any kind of, you know, non-provocation yeah. or just even sitting positions, you know, working through, and here's, you know, she's a medical person, right? And working through all of those things, I think this is the powerful conversations that we need to be happening because mm -hmm. our own medical people aren't even understanding, right, like right. how these things overplay with each other. Right. And, and sex is just something that is very personal, obviously. It's, it's our innate right. It's something that we do. It's in our, it, it lives in our brainstem with our, where our respiration, our digestion, our every, all of our basic function is. So it's something that, that we deserve. It's our right to be sexual. Um, but when things happen, unfortunately, and all too often you go into the doctor's office and say, I can't pain. It hurts. It hurts when I sit. It hurts when I wear tight jeans. I can't use a tampon anymore. 
and they put them on their table, they put their legs up and they take a look and they say, well, there's really nothing wrong. We can do a swab. We'll see if you have yeast. Well, no, you don't have yeast. Well, how about just a couple of glasses of wine before you have sex? Try that and see if that works. You know what? And if that doesn't work, I'll give you some lidocaine. And I know this is real, has in the United States, it's, it's a coast kind of thing. So I'm in the Midwest, so I'm not a big fan of lidocaine. Just use some lidocaine. We don't, you don't need to enjoy this at all, but in at least you can have it. And that always makes me crazy. So we just don't know. It, you know, and, and fortunately now we're in a position where I'm glad that you're out there and I'm glad to hear that. Fortunately, in the world right now, femtech is exploding. And as a result, women's health across the lifestyle is, across the life cycle, is beginning to get noticed. Um, menopause, of course, is taking first and forefront position because even famous people go through menopause and like, oh, God, why didn't anybody tell me about this? But I think with that, all of the other sexual issues are going to come closer and closer to the forefront before they too explode. So that's, I think we're in a really, really, really exciting place in time where we are in our position and being able to talk about sex and, and good sex, not sex. Pleasure. 100%. I know one of the things that I learned when I was with you was that, you know, don't look, don't touch, don't enjoy. And it was interesting how that sort of the sexual education that our young people are receiving in middle school is this sort of idea like there is no joy in it and you're not supposed to know anything about it. And if you do do it, you're going to get pregnant and have a baby. Right. Well, I mean, it even goes back to don't touch yourself, even as young kids, as young girls. When you don't, if you have a clitoris, thank you, Freud. Don't play with it. Don't touch it. Don't do anything with it because it's really not part of your body. I think it's part of my body, but it was always bad and nasty and, and don't do it. And I think that we still have so much of that. Culturally, we have so many issues. Um, women have as much right to their sex organ as men. Clitoris owners have as much right to their sexuality as penis owners but we have to get that word out because it's 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 such an interesting thing. And there's a, I I always get a little frustrated when they refer to clitorises as baby penises because they really truly are quite different. But we need to really bring that out. That and again, that really is my thrust right now. Really talking across the board, multidisciplinary, talking about anatomy and function, hoping that. I should say in the United States, because other places are doing it. In the United States, we can begin to talk, give language to people in medical people, again, multidisciplinary people, to begin to talk about the anatomy of the female body so then that we can then focus into how it works. Because we don't ever talk about that. I know. So, Dee, I do a little bit of work with some of the family practice residents. And yeah. you know, one of the things they ask me to talk about all the time is, you know, either sexual health or, you know, pelvic health. And I'm always like, oh, they cross over <laughs> with each other very nicely. But they're just trying to find the words to be able to know how to say the things that they need to say. Right. So 
So sometimes trying to make it simple and basic and so many of our family practice and nurse practitioners are the one who are screening them. How do you help people talk about that, like in the medical field to our patients? Can you give right. me some examples? Right. Sure. And unfortunately, in our very broken medical system, there's so little time for this to happen. I think nurse practitioners have and PAs have a little more time, but it's it's just such an incredible thing. And my favorite is just going back to plain and simple anatomy. And being able to talk about what the clitoris is, the parts of the clitoris, how they sit right on top of the urethra in the vagina, and how it functions. And just very basic anatomy, because what percentage of, of, of clitoris owners do you think think this is the only part of the clitoris? Well, let's extend that out to what percentage of the population, I know you have to be clitoris owners, or people who aren't in the medical field. You know, so to have a better understanding of what our sex organ is all about, I think I'm hopeful is a way for people to at least get started. And so any generous questions. Will you hold that picture that hold that model back up because that is such a great model? Will yes. you talk through all the parts of that so that sure. our listeners can actually see that and and have a visual of hey, this is how complex and how large and how big actually the whole clitoral region and the erogenous zone actually is. Yes. Now, this is twice the size of a normal clitoris. The clitoris isn't the size of your face, trust me. That's That has to come first. But if we look at just the, the clitoral complex itself, we all know about the glands. Everybody knows about the glands. But the pink parts, and you can kind of see, are analogous to the erectile tissue of the penis. But this has one embryologic origin. The glands and this tissue coming down from the glands to connect to the vestibular bulbs are from a different embryologic origin. So they aren't erectile tissues. Now, that being said, the clitoris does not get erect. I have recently seen literature that it does not get erect. The only thing that moves or changes, it gets firm, like the penis, the bulbs fill with blood and they expand. So as they expand with blood, with arousal, with full arousal, that remind you can always take up to 45 minutes, they sit around the, the urethra and the vaginal canal, putting pressure on the sides of the vaginal canal. So interestingly, um, we know now, too, that there are over 10,000 nerve endings on this little tip of the, peen, of the, of the clitoris. They're like, there's some question now. It used to be 4,000 on the, on the penis that's much larger. So you get some sense of the nerve here. The, what we have in this model, actually, there's, there's actually a group of, I kid you not, clitoris model makers from around the world. The clitorotomy, as they refer to themselves, yeah, are, are working on clitoris models. And this is actually, truth be told, these, this, is, this is actually an aroused clitoris because if it wasn't aroused, the vestibular bulbs would be thinner and not so full because they're not full of blood. So that's, that's the anatomy, the functional anatomy of how it works. 
Now, if we take a look at this, this is a new model. I don't know that you've seen this one yet. If you see it I online, haven't. this is the, the clitorate model. This is from a physical therapist in, in Melbourne, Australia. Took four years to design this bad boy. So it, it's, it sits like this. You open it up and you have this beautiful vulva. Oh, very nice. Is that lovely? They made the skin, they made the skin darker because everything is, is in Caucasian tones. Interestingly, the labia, the clitoris is here. The labia are very pliable and they're working oh, wow. on, they're, they come out. I'll show you in just a second. They're working on diversity, vulvar diversity, and they're making different size, shapes, and colors of vulvas that can go into this model. Oh, that's fascinating. Isn't that that's awesome? That's awesome. If you, if you go down to the next layer, you see mm -hmm. where the clitoris sits. This is the, oh, or falls off. This is the pubic symphysis. This is where the pubic bone comes together in the front. This is the, the, uter the, the vagina and the urethra. And again, the clitoris sits right on top of that. So it's important to know, too, that the clitoral nerves come right down the neck of the clitoris. There's been some really incredible research and some studies that have been done looking at just using a vibrator. This is just this isn't the vibrator they used in the studies, but that if you just put a vibrator on top of the clitoral body for, I mean, the protocol was really loose, like three to five minutes, two to three times a week for three months, improve sexual function, improve quality of life across the board. So that's, you know, that's the research that's coming that we're, we're looking at and, and, and doing. So this is a really neat model. She is also working on this is an aroused clitoris. We decided we, they were calling it erect and non-erect. It's, like, it's really not erect. If it doesn't get erect, this is aroused. So they're going to, they're going to work on changing that. So we'll be able to have access to, to unaroused clitoris as well. We are supposed to be getting these in the United States to have available for sale, just so you know. But it's just another way to be able to introduce physical anatomy without having to talk about arousal and orgasm, masturbation. I, I never use the word masturbation in my practice because to me, it has a negative connotation. I self-pleasuring. So to be able to talk about self-pleasuring and the function of the clitoris from an anatomical perspective, rather than from a sexual perspective, I think hopefully will get people going in the right direction. So Dee, before you shut that all the way back up, Will oh, yeah. you just show will you just show that the uh, the side wall there where kind of you know that whole ischiocavernosis muscle might lie too? The issue the, the gosh darn it. Interestingly, the legs or the crura of the clitoris are completely engulfed inside the ischiocavernosis. One hundred percent inside. And we know how teeny the ischiocavernosis is as as PTs. But that these crews are inside that muscle. I, Melanie Marin is an amazing genius as a, as a PhD physical therapy researcher, physiotherapy researcher in Canada, has done dissection. And she said, the tissue here, the muscle is very, very small. And it was almost impossible to differentiate between 
the the muscle mm-hmm. in the clitoral cruise, but we know from from studies that that's that's where it is. Yeah. So, D, have they done any research that you know of that they you know because you're saying how they kind of stimulated with the vibration the top of the you know mm-hmm. that sort of the ridge coming out. Have they done any along the sides at all where sort of that whole cruise and the ischiocavernosis lie? And how much research has actually been done (laughs) on women's genitalia? Well, not a lot. (laughs) Well, because we know it's the brain. We've got a lot of functional MRIs. We've got a lot now. We're starting, hopefully, we're going to start working with some EEG to see what's going on. But functionally, we really don't know. We have been working with a nifty little tool, thank you for bringing it up, called the Lioness, which actually is an insertable pressure biofeedback with a clitoral stimulator. And what it allows us to do is to look at what's happening in the pelvic floor muscles during arousal and orgasm. For those who aren't familiar with the pelvic floor, this is, this is a pelvis. We have a superficial pelvic floor and a deep pelvic floor. And it's these muscles that, that contract and relax with orgasm. So, yeah, we, we are really, we've done some preliminary research. I, I've presented a couple of, of abstracts. They have updated their software, and now we can actually go through the user sessions. This is a, this is a consumer product. It wasn't developed as a research product. It's a consumer product. Women buy it. They use it in the privacy of their own home. So this is research that's come where sex happens rather than in a research lab. And they now have it where you can mark on the app. You can now watch. I mean, it's Bluetooth, right? So you can watch it on the phone. You can be sitting there having sex and watch your orgasm happen on your phone, which I don't know how they do it and finish, but that, you know, neither here nor there. So they they watch, but now they can tap on the screen when they perceive orgasm starting. And when they perceive orgasms ending, which is going to allow us, we, we, the last, the study that we look at, the, the only study that really seems to give us any information was published in 1983 or 85. And it talks about the frequency of pelvic floor contractions that happen during orgasm. We're hoping to either prove or disprove that by being able to look at perceived orgasm versus what we find if we plug that algorithm in and see that on the graph. So that's what, what we're working with. However, however, I have a new little ditty. You've probably not seen this one either. This is from New Zealand. This is the Femchit. This is, this is a vaginal sensor. And it, it's a pressure biofeedback, and it has eight pressure sensors on it. Eight. That's fascinating. Pressure sensors. Wow. So it goes all the way from the superficial pelvic floor, and the most internal one can measure intra-abdominal pressure. I love it. Hoping for FDA approval, actually, next month. At which time, well, I, I, I have this one. It's really just, I, I can't remember exactly when she came out with it. But we're talking about using it and looking at all levels of pelvic floor muscles and that what happens. Fabulous. It is so darn cool. 
Um, I'm actually, I'm having a Zoom talk with, with Jenny this week to talk about it. It's like, oh my, because with this, you can hopefully use this during partnered sex. Again, sex, studying sex where sex happens. You can, with, with just arousal, with touching the breasts, with kissing, with touching to see what happens with, with female arousal. How cool is that? That's amazing. It's so exciting. That's amazing. Uh, D, D, so, I mean, this is, I think, what's so fascinating, you know, because so many years people thought, oh, well, if you, you know, just, you know, got arousal at the clitoral bulb, hey, that's all that it took. Or, hey, oh, there was this old idea that there was this G-spot thing that was going uh-huh. on and that's all that it took. And and so I think so many people got so stuck in all of these areas. And then if women don't know, they can't teach their partner. And so our job really is to help educate women so they know yes. their body and something like this fit or, you know, these sorts of sensor idea, just like you said, hey, you know, is nipple stimulation something that then gives, you know, arousal to the floor, like being right. able to actually see, oh, yeah, that actually does work. But uh, like teaching and educating people what their body parts are then becomes so important because then yes. they can then say, oh. Well, then I know how to teach my partner what to do. Right. How could, how could, you know, the, the whole thing that I wish we could get rid of was, well, my last boyfriend gave me the best orgasms. My boyfriend now, he's not so good at it. It's like, we need to take control and take ownership of, of our own bodies, of our own orgasms. You, your arousal can be changed, obviously, all sorts of ways. But if we don't know how to get to that end point, of that really fully aroused orgasm, we're just missing the boat. And and that's, yeah. So Dee, I had always kind of heard, heard that, you know, it took like, oh, 20 minutes to reach full arousal for a woman, five minutes for a man. You just mentioned something about 45 minutes. Will you yeah. talk about that a little bit with me? <laughs> well, you know what? And, and that's that comes from my, my sexology business partner, Elizabeth. I'm not exactly sure where that came from, but we, from somewhere in the sex world, and you know, we're, we're, to be clear, we're in the medical sex world, which is yes. weensy, weensy, weensy. She's yes. in the alternative sex world, which is much bigger, much more open, much more interested in looking at things, but not being bound to having the research, quite frankly, yeah, to, back, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to back that up. Um, they're all over the G spot. They're all over all of these different different pieces of of arousal so i'm not really sure where that came from but if you go back to the g-spot when i was in dubai there was some big wig physician from la i think speaking about i I can't even remember what his topic was but he made some reference to to the g-spot or no some reference oh i know he was mapping sexual genital areas arousable areas throughout the vulva and one of them was inside the vagina on the anterior wall on the top, on the roof. And, you know, he went on and on. And he, didn't, he didn't really say anything about it. But, you know, me, I stand up and I have my model with me. And I said, do you have any thoughts? I know in the medical world, we don't talk about the G-spot because there's no medical evidence other than a very small study that Erwin Goldstein did. There's really no evidence that a women have, that women have a female prostate in the G-spot. And they kind of are, kind of go together. But I said, do you think if you look at this model and you see how this vestibular tissue comes down 
and is fits right on top of the urethra, that this might be responsible for that anterior anterior wall sensitivity. And he said, huh, he said, we need to talk. I said, yeah, let's, let's chat about anatomy. So, I mean, this is somebody who's, who's actually his, 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 he's doing a lot of transgender stuff, which is, is, is a, is a great place to be. And he's a really great guy and he's doing all sorts of things, but it's really fun to talk to somebody about that, even about the full anatomy, because I just don't think they, they know. So arousal, this was all about arousal and I got way off track. Um, no, that's okay. That's okay. I, I, yes. had, I bring it up only because uh, years ago I, I trained with a urogynecologist, a, a male physician, and he was explaining that, you know, some of the work that he had done literally indicated that, you know, the, like the left side, you know, internal G spot area was more sensitive, 60% more sensitive than the right side. You know, they didn't really know why, but they were. And so that's why this whole femme fit thing, thing that you're talking to me about with the sensors and all of that just kind of fascinated me when you brought it up because I thought, oh, that's really interesting that, you know, they had already noted that there was this higher sensitivity. Okay, where did that come from? Maybe right. We don't know because we haven't right. researched it enough yet, but now we might be able to have tools to research because, you know, we, like you said, we work in the medical field. We want you know, medical data to sort of back. We do. We absolutely because, do. Yeah, because that helps push and educate and train us in a much better way so that we have greater understanding that when we're teaching that we can really share in that way. So so that that's that's very interesting to me. Yeah. I, I want to bring up something to you that's, a, you know, a topic, you know, you kind of talked about this sexual mapping and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. When you do some of the sexual work that you do with people, because I know you do a lot of, you know, work with couples or people Mm -hmm. who are working through their own sexual health, talk about sexual mapping and and like what that actually means so people understand that. Yeah. And and Elizabeth would be a great one to talk to you about that as well with the the blueprints. With the blueprints, because it's everybody has their spot. I mean, there's some people who I have a spot on my back that. When my husband scratches it, he says, oh, my God, that's you have more response to that than anything else I do when we're in bed. And it's true. I have this spot that's great. It doesn't give me an orgasm. It just feels really, really good. And we really have to find a way as couples, if you're having partnered sex, whatever partnered sex you do, have to find things that feel good. And a piece of that is having time in liking who it is that you're having this experience with. You know, we get so busy in this world and, and, and I see it with my kids. They're so busy. You've got two, two households, two parents, two, both spouses, both, both in the partnership working. You have kids, you have dinner, you have homework. Then one of you goes and watches one show on one TV. The other goes and watches a show on another TV. And you've hardly spoken to each other, much less touched each other or, done anything nice for each other during the whole course of the day and then you're supposed to jump in bed and have hot juicy sex it just seems to make sense to me that if we liked each other a little bit more that our love making may be that much better we need to know that when your partner comes close to you and touches you your heart starts to beat a little bit because it feels good but not because oh don't don't do that i don't that doesn't feel good and the only way we can do that is to experiment is to explore is to touch each other, is to see what feels good, is to talk 
to each other. Sometimes it, it takes just doing it on your own and finding your own spots that feel good. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I think, too, that, you know, women have gotten so used to, you know, they're doing, doing, doing for everybody. And then what happens is that if their spouse is just actually just touching them, maybe in a because we're physical beings. I think people forget. That oh, my gosh. We are yes. Physical beings. We're physically driven, driven. Like you said, it's our human right to actually have touch and to have uh, contact yes. that that keeps us right, healthy and well to have physical touch and physical contact. But I think some of the women that I work with, they're like, oh, you know, I haven't been touched all day. And then all of a sudden, when I'm exhausted at the end of the day, oh, you know, they're suddenly touching me. And that's like, oh, my God, now it leads to sex. And I'm too exhausted to even do that thing. Yeah. So what what are you telling couples? How do you help them walk through the fact that, you know, like every physical contact doesn't mean that, like, oh, my gosh, right. now I'm going to have to have sex with him. Do you know what I mean? How do how do you right. work through that with people? It's 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 just general touching. I mean, it doesn't have to be sexual. Pleasure isn't just for sex. Pleasure is, you know, exploring things together. Is is going out for dinner? Is having experiencing good food together? Is 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 touching? Is hugging? Is kissing? Is giving each other massages? Is is being aware of what our partner wants? I mean, it, it, it's it's a very simple thing, but it, you know what? In, in this kind of goes off the off track too. COVID is the, the COVID thing has really messed people up, and, and I think it's it's it, I think that it, it's going to be an interesting progression in history as we see because fewer and fewer. I mean, what did I see? The just recent statistics of males have a sexual partner up to the age of 30 or 35. I mean, the, the statistics are dropping way down because we went from we could touch if we wanted to, to we couldn't touch. So until we get back into that skin on skin, I, I think we're going we're gonna to have a lot of problems when you have so much virtual, so much virtual contact. You know, you've got virtual dating, you've got porn all over the place. We need to get back to that human touch. I mean, we know what it's like for babies. We know how important it is for babies. As we come into this world, that touch is so important, and it's just that important throughout life. And without it, we become reclusive. We become into ourselves. We become older faster. We die sooner. All of it just takes takes us down. We need that input to really live full and in 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 plump lives, full and full and healthy, pleasurable lives. It just all goes so together. D, so D, there's definitely a vulnerability, the fear of rejection that people have with intimacy, with sexuality. How do you work through that with people to help people realize like, yes, you are putting yourself out there. You know, when you're in a pornographic standpoint, like there's no rejection. You get at whatever you want, however you want it, right? Right, right. Where, whereas there's definitely a risk involved when you and I put ourselves out there with our partner, whether it's asking for what we want or receiving, right, the pleasure. So actually learning to ask and also to be able to receive right. a significant issue, right, I think in our country right now. Right. And communication. I mean, and it all goes back to communication. And now we're also big into the world of consent, which is wonderful. And and I certainly understand and appreciate it. 
but it, we just, again, it, it goes back to that being so busy that you don't have time to even talk to each other. You know, one of the things that, that, that I like to talk about, I talked to all my patients about was if you can swing date night and go out and just be with each other face to face in a place where you don't have to feed anybody. You don't have to fix your own meal. You don't have to clean up the dishes and talk to each other. Share it with a partner if you don't have enough money for a babysitter and you don't have to go for an expensive date, but just communicate. Because if we can't communicate on a clothed physical level, if all we do is argue or chat about how many diapers we changed or what happened at work, it's really hard to get that to transition into conversation and communication in the bedroom. So I think it's just our general lifestyle. I mean, it's, it's, it's really going back to the five love languages. It's figuring out what do you really like and trying to make the other person happy throughout the course of the date. Liking each other really matters, you know, but we can't, you know, in all of this. And, and if you're thinking about new relationships or, 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 or moving on, whatever the case may be, we really can't ever forget the part that trauma plays because Trauma, whatever size, shape, whenever it happened, is, has a tendency to rear its ugly head at the moments where we least expect it and where we least need it and want it. So I think that there's a lot of that. And I think, unfortunately, as we go on with what's happened in the last four or five years, I think that's going to be a bigger, bigger, bigger piece of, of what's involved in all of the relationship issues and, and sexual pleasure. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting going forward. So we need more and more people talking about this and dealing with it as, as, as we go along for sure. So, I mean, let's just bring up a piece of this and, you know, that part of it is, you know, this whole idea of like, you know, if a woman actually did love to have sexual activity and love to be involved, then she's sort of considered a slut. And this slut shaming and this embarrassment. And so it's an inhibitor for a woman to actually really want to have, you know, mm -hmm. desire for sexual activities. And as one of the men that I know, he said, oh, the first 90 days is always the best. You know what I mean? With, with your partner. With anybody. Yeah. Right. And I was like, okay, well, this is really difficult, right? Like if you know, we're trying to find and help people sort of realize like, yeah, you're right. The first 90 days is great. And yes, that's wonderful. But there seems to be different stigmas associated to men and to women. Right. You know, in that whole desire, you know, for sexuality and for closeness, et cetera. And, you know, if you were told all your life that, you know, certain things were wrong or bad, bad. or like no, no nice girl did that. You know, what do women do with all that? Oh, I think it's very difficult. In, in the first 90 days, you know, there's a very big difference between lust and love. And we know from the research that lusty relationships, they're more on the edge. They're more exciting. They're more arousing. It's new, which is all, all well and good and normal. But if you're developing a relationship with someone and it goes on past that, you are supposed to be developing other things that bring you together other than just the hot, juicy sex. Yeah. You, you know, you're starting to be, you're starting to share your lives. You may be talking about children. You're, you're going forward with a much fuller relationship. So 
it, it again, research shows that as that happens, sex is a little bit less frequent because we go into more love situations than lust. The research also tells us that couples who have more sex as they're aging are typically going to have more sex as they get older, even older. People always think that women go through menopause and, oh, sex is gone and, and oh, I'm I dried up, I'm done, I'm, I don't need to do this anymore. And that's, and that's another, another discussion, but it doesn't have, <clears throat> pardon me, that doesn't have to be the case. That doesn't have to be the case. And so I've had women who come in who, you know, haven't had sex for 10 or 20 years. And, and now suddenly they're like having this awakening of, no, I want to be sexually active. I want to turn the corner. And physical therapy, I feel, is a huge component of that. Of oh, yes. Seeing them and educating them and teaching them all these things that probably they never learned, you know, when they were younger as well. So just because we're perimenopause and menopause doesn't mean that, right. you know, a woman can have sex till the day she dies, right? She can have an orgasm till the day she dies. Right. Right. We can't have babies and like, you know, male fertility runs into what the 80s. You can, you know, a man can father a child. Um, but, you know, you know, and we're supposed to die. I remember, I mean, look at the animal world. We're, we're really not supposed to live on past our reproductive years, but we can and we do. And if we really work at it, we can live and continue to be as sexual as we were. Now, if you've not had sex for 10 or 15 years, you all of a sudden meet this guy. You, you're in lust. You, you know, this guy is great and you want to do this and you do get end up into a sexual situation. Your vagina may not be so happy that all of a sudden you're coming here. If again, if you're postmenopausal. So there are ways to get past that. Arousal certainly helps. It makes a big difference. But you just have to go a little bit more slower, but a little bit more slowly. You may have to use do some dilation therapy to to acclimate and to get your pelvic floor muscles going again, widen the introitus a little bit, the opening of the vagina. But how many times you've seen it happen? How many times I saw it happen? It can work. PT is a great place to start and a great place to go because you learn all about first and foremost the anatomy, how it works, and how you can take control of it and make it. Change the anatomy so that what you want to do, you can do. Uh, Dee, so let it talk a little bit to like, you know, just culturally some of the things that women sort of have been exposed to. And then how do we help women who have had trauma and, you know, who have, you know, whether it be micro traumas, whether it be big traumas, whether it's rape right. or incest or things of that nature. Talk a little bit about your background and your training and some of the things that you see that might be helpful for women as they move forward, as they want to have healthier sexual activities with their partner. Yeah. I, I, when, it, the, the, when it comes to the trauma piece, there's it's 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 such a it's such an overall kind of 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 thing it's not like having broken your leg and you have a limp it's this encompasses your entire body and it it's it's really a way of figuring out and finding out where it happened i'm i'm a firm believer that we need to go all the way back and look and see what your mother was doing what was her life like when you were in utero because i think that that can even have an impact what was your mom like as a as you were a newborn where did that start Lots of people have no idea that all of these things can have an impact. That's nothing to be guilty about. That's nothing to feel bad about. It's just that we need to address it 
and understand it and get help with it. There are trauma therapists, there are sex therapists, to be clear, who are great, but there are also trauma therapists. And if you can find a sex therapist who's also a trauma therapist, they do a great job with doing that. But again, I think it needs to have that multidisciplinary approach because I think that even as someone is working through that, they still need to know how their body works from a functional perspective because they probably have never known. We, when you were at the retreat, did a lovely process called tension, tension trauma release exercises. And it's, it's something that's truly very simple. And it's, it was developed by David Berselli, who was a trauma specialist back in the 80s in the war-torn countries. And he realized that there was a difference between the way adults and children respond to trauma that kids, as in the natural, as in the wild, when some, when a bomb would hit afterwards, would sh- their whole body would shake and then they would be fine. Whereas adults would go into the fetal position and, and come out of it and go, oh, that was the worst ever. So it's, he developed a series of exercises that allow people to get into that brainstem trauma, that, excuse me, tremor piece of the body to allow the body to work through some things that we have no idea because trauma isn't just stored in the brain. Traumas can be stored throughout the body. So that's one neat, nifty little thing that people can do. There are TRE practitioners, quite frankly, all over the world. And if somebody has some trauma that they dealt with in other ways, nothing is a be-all, end-all. And nothing works 100%. Nothing works 100%. If it does, you have to say, well, I don't believe it. It really is what it is. But it's really that broad perspective of trying to get to you know, EMDR is a way to get past trauma. Hypnosis is a way, acupuncture. There are a lot of alternative ways that people, whatever the problem, can reach out and get to outside of our traditional medical world, which is wonderful and great. But there are lots of things outside of that that can work well, too. So, Dee, why did you call this uh, one company you founded, uh, PleasureMovement.com? Explain that to us. <laughs> Oh, pleasuremovement.com. It actually came after we wrote the book, after we wrote the Pleasure Prescription book, because we wanted to have a place for people who had read the book to go and to learn a little bit. There's not a lot of learning on the website, but there's there's a place there. There's ways to contact Elizabeth and, and me. We do do... We do see couples. We do see people. We are private, just single people. Um, it's either in their homes. We do virtual calls. We, we try to help work them through what they're doing. Our retreats, we also offer a retreat twice a year for, for professionals to come to our house here at the lake. We only have six people now. And it's a very, it's, it's a retreat setting where you come to the house, you sleep at the house, we eat at the house and from Friday afternoon until Sunday afternoon, we are there laughing, talking, crying, working together to get through and to figure out all of this stuff. And lots and lots of times it's as much for ourselves as it is for the people that we're going to come across. So that and we also we also have models for sale there. So if people want models. Those are those are there. The book, you can address the book there. So there's just a lot of information there that people can go and see. So your your other company, Volvo Love, tell us a little bit about that too. 
Bovalon was the first that we, the first website and company that we developed. It actually is, is our financial company. That's, that's where all of our sales go through. It's a for-profit corporation. And we started there really addressing labiaplasty and vulvar diversity. Well, let me, let me reverse that. We started that to address the normalcy in vulvar diversity to make the only thing normal about vulvas is diversity kind of thing. Um, And started there with labiaplasty because labiaplasty was the fast at the time was the fastest growing elective plastic surgery around the world. And it basically is where women go in and say, I want you to cut my labia off. They're too big. They're flapping outside. I don't like them. I want them gone. In the procedures, you go and you literally trim off the labia menorah, stitch it up, and make them neat and tidy. Because, you know, we think that's how you're supposed to look if you look at porn or if you look at other different types of media. So that was that was why we went there for that. We don't do much with that much anymore other than that's our, that's our, our, our corporate for-profit corporation. So that's, that's where that came from. So do you just expound on that just a little bit about, you know, what is, what is the problem with doing that and why should, what is this whole thing with this labioplasty? Like, what is it? What might it it affect? What might it affect? It's part of the arousal network. Those labia menorah, this is another model. This again is, is the clitoris, but you see it embedded. This is the labia menorah, the inner lips, if you will. That inner lip comes up and comes across and over the top of the clitoral, of the clitoral glands and the neck to form the hood of the clitoris with this teeny tiny part coming just over the clitoral glands called the prepus. And this too, with arousal, gets filled with blood and becomes very nice to touch and is part of what happens when we are able to touch other areas in and around. When we chop this off, we're cutting off nerve endings. We're cutting off tissue that can possibly help us become more and more aroused. We can pop, there's possible scar tissue. Typically, I mean, there's, there's a, 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 a physicians out there who are just correcting botched labiaplasties out there, of course. Unfortunately, it's oftentimes plastic surgeons doing the surgery rather than gynecologists. So there's no real assessment of other vulvar diseases, which can be a problem. So that that is the issue. But the, the reason that women think they need to do that, interestingly, and according to the research, isn't because their partners, male or female, don't like what they see. It's really a self-imposed, for the most part, a self-imposed thing. That being said, there's there's record of someone as young as nine in the UK whose mother took her for a labiaplasty because her inner labia were too big. Oh, mercy. So, Dee, uh, another question that has sort of come up, you know, with women who have pelvic pain is that, you know, too much um, self-stimulation or you know, intercourse actually makes pelvic pain worse. Will you talk about that and address that a little bit with us? Are you re- referencing generalized pelvic pain as opposed to vulvar pain? I'm, I'm talking about kind of overall the sensation of pelvic pain because many people don't know the difference. Do you know what I mean? Between, you know, generalized pelvic pain and maybe more specific pain. So 
<laughs> you know, sometimes it's this global idea of like, oh, you know, it's already painful down there, so I'm just never going to touch it because it right. is painful. Or every time I have intercourse, I do have pain. So, you know, I'm never going to touch it. And they maybe don't even know where the pain is coming from. Right. Right. Well, in come the physical therapist to take an assessment, to do an assessment, to do an internal exam, to palpate the urethra, to palpate the bladder, to palpate the uterus, to palpate all of the structures in the anterior pelvis, and sometimes to assess the, the muscular and fascial tissues in the posterior pelvis. Because from my perspective, my job was to identify where the pain was coming from. And if I couldn't do that, there was nothing I could do. Because if I couldn't find and reproduce what was causing the pain, I wouldn't know what it was. So oftentimes, it's, you know, from a physical perspective at this point, I don't really think there's a whole lot I can do for you. We just need to have them go through that process, have a recognition of where that pain is, what that pain feels like what it feels like to have that area touch and figure out if there's tension in the urethra. Is there tension in the bladder? Is your uterus stuck from adhesions? Pardon me. Is your uterus not mobile enough so that when you have deep penetrative of sex, you're bumping on the, on the cervix and it's literally hooked or attached to the, to the, to the bladder or to the rectum. And that hurts when it's pulled. We need to figure that out and find out if that's what's causing the pain. So I guess, you know, some of the statements that I've heard, you know, some people make is, oh, you know, (laughs) excessive sexual stimulation actually can make pelvic pain worse. Right. What what do you think about that statement? Well, then, and from my understanding and what people really think it is, is with arousal that the uterus begins to contract and relax along with the pelvic floor. I'm not really sure we have any research that supports that, but that could be the case. <laughs> Other than that, I, you know, you've got the pelvic floor muscle contracts during arousal. We know that that's the case. If that's causing some pain from a fascial perspective up into the urethra and the bladder, that can be a piece of the whole. I mean, it really is just, to, it's, it, we, we really are the private investigators. We're really looking to see what tissue in and around, because as physical therapists, that's, we, we have to see physically what's going on. And, and, other than that, I, 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 you know, I really don't know if they, if they have painful periods and they haven't been checked for endometriosis, obviously that needs to be done. If they have bowel issues, they have IBS and they, that needs to be checked and assessed because all of irritable bladder, painful bladder syndrome, urethral problems, all of those things I think can be an impasse, be impactful and cause pain at the opening, pain all up and in. And I, 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 from my perspective, I think it's really hard to say when it comes to vulvar pain, which is where I spent my years of practice, if uh, I'm convinced that 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 vulvar pain can either be the bring it all on and make problems worse all throughout, but more times than not, it's everything that's going on up above that is finally down below. You can't have problems in your bladder, your urethra, your uterus, or your, or your rectum without having pelvic floor muscle respond to that. I don't think it's the pelvic floor that's causing the problem. I think the pelvic floor's pelvic floor high overactivity is a symptom of the problem. I don't think it's the cause of anything. I think it's it's a follower. Just my professional uh, bridge. You know, Dee, will you just explain, like, in your just really quickly too, like when you say vulva, like what does it actually encompass? Just tell us the structures that are there. 
the vulva, let me put my model quickly back together. Cool, take this part out. The vulva, again, this is the pelvis. This is the pubic symphysis, the clitoris underneath here. The vulva is externally and in this triangle. If I, if I put, put a pencil across here, it's the triangle above my pencil. It includes the superficial pelvic floor muscles. It includes the glans clitoris, the urethra, the vaginal opening, the labia minora, the labia majora, and we also include the mons, which is this area up here, and, and the arousal network. This is really the vulva here. The mons is included in the arousal network. But this is the vulva. This is not the vagina. This is the vulva. The vagina is inside. There's still people who, who don't do that right. It's also amazing. So yes, so this is the vulva. I can tell you that, that all of my, I have, I have six grandkids between the ages of four and six and five of them a girl. And they all know it's their vulva and not their vagina. If you get it wrong, they will correct you. So it is the outside, not the inside. So if someone says to you, oh, you know, where's the vestibule? Will you show us on there where the vestibule is? That's yes. The vestibule is just like going into church. It's right outside the sanctuary, and it's right here. It's right just inside the outside, but it's not all the way inside. It's the pat that, that threshold that you have to go over to get to the inside from the outside. There's heart's line. There's, there's all these different anatomical markings, but that's, that's the easiest way to get there. I appreciate that because that helps a lot of people understand that, you know, they're, they're talking about areas and you and I are very specific with areas because when we're talking about pain in that whole region of that vulvular area, we, we, we nitpick it, don't we? We're like, okay, where are we you do. feeling that? We do. Oh, it's, you know, oh, it's in the labia minora. Oh no, it's actually no, it's only when provocation happens when I actually go to the entrance. Oh no, it's in that bottom part of the vestibule. Right. It's very important, right, for us to help people determine where this pain pattern is coming from, when, when it happens. And, you know, right. I have some you know, women who will say, hey, I have pain for two to three days after sex. And you're like, okay, well, where is it? Where is and, it? Or, or they may say, D, oh, I feel swollen down there. Oh, yeah. You know, everything feels swollen. And, you know, helping them understand, okay, what do they do with that? Because, of course, mm -hmm. you're going to have increase in blood flow to that area. So, sure. yes, you could almost feel like the system, right, gets full and then it doesn't. It does. That's just perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't know how to unload itself. And through teaching them ways to do that, then, you know, they are not going to have, whether that's propping or gentle swiping of the, you know, uh, nodes in the growing and through the moms right. and, you know, kind of right. helping unload all that. But helping people understand that's why we're so specific about, you know, where do you feel this? How long do you feel it? You know, does it last for two hours? Does it last for four days? You know, right. Right. Because that's our only way to kind of get to the bottom of how do we help. Right. That being said, however, I loved how you said earlier that it would be nice not to talk about just sexual dysfunction, but actual talk about sexual health. And yeah. actually, you know, 
if we would teach and train about sexual health before, maybe we would have way less Less. sexual dysfunction. Yes, Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very beautifully put. Thank you. I couldn't agree with you more. And I would love, I mean, and that's what, that's, again, my pleasure that I get to talk about now. And it's so much more fun than talking about pain all the time. (laughs) I totally agree. I totally agree. I totally agree. So, Dee, what's on the horizon for you next? What are you, what are you working on? I, I loved it that you were talking about this FemFit sensor. That fascinates me. I mean, that just really is amazing because we have so much to learn about all of this. And things like that will just help propel us forward right. to help right. women, right? I was just going to show you the, the tracing that I got from this oh, and yeah. how amazing it is and the tracings that I get from from the lioness because it's it's just it's just so cool you're just gonna you're gonna go nuts that's that's it you're gonna go nuts that's it's really cool i love it it's really cool yeah so is that kind of the next step of more yes like tell me yeah which are we i think that it's it's there's there's so much to do again because we know very little so we're still going to continue looking at what happens at the pelvic floor during arousal this is is a great tool, but I think that this is going to be a really great tool. I love the lioness, and it's given us so much valuable information. I think this is going to be different because it's going to give us different types of arousal yeah. rather than just clitoral stimulation. Plus, I mean, what do you think about muscle if you've got something to squeeze against versus just a pure whatever you call this yeah. muscle contraction where you're not squeezing anything? This is this is going to give us a lot more data. I'm curious to see if we we're going to be able to use this with women with pain to see if we can get a sense. You know, there's a study that suggests one of, I think it was Caroline Pacall's study suggested that it's a superficial pelvic floor that's tight during, during with vulvar pain. And I never thought that was the case, but this will certainly prove that. This will start to show us what levels of the pelvic floor contract during orgasm, during arousal. Will we be able to get this rectally? Can we use it in men? Because then we can begin to get shared arousal will this work in the vagina with thrusting we don't know that mm-hmm. that's an answer for yeah. something we don't know um right so it's all again and we're, we're actually talking with somebody about doing eeg um and arousal and orgasm um so really on the basic science level of how women work from a physiologic perspective we're not just all emotional nutcases no Absolutely not. No. And I I think it's interesting what you're saying about, you know, oh, would it be just superficial tissue? I don't think so. I mean, my perception have always been of, do they mean pelvic pain, orgasm, all these different things? It's a whole activity through that whole floor. There's no way. I mean, when you look at how sophisticated just the external anal sphincter is through its layers and the, the fact that the superficial layers to the perineal body the next layer in is kind of hooked to the sacrum through its fascial line. And that this is just the external sphincter alone. And then the pubo rectalis, yes. there is absolutely no way you can ignore right. the posterior part of the floor as part of sexual health. It just is not possible. No. Yeah. No. And, and it's, it's always interesting because so many times the people who make these proclamations that this is what it is have never physically assessed a pelvic floor. Yeah. I, I, I'm 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 growing less and less patient with with people who who talk and and in particular who talk. This is this is 
I probably should just not say this. Psychologists who talk about vaginismus and and think it's the same thing as same think it's the same thing as vulvodynia. It's like, well, no, yeah, it isn't. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that we we are so lucky that we get to do it. We do. Well, and I think in our pelvic health world, we we need to stand up and do the say the thing and do the work and sit at the table and be part of the narrative. We're the we're the ones actually in the physical realm, musculoskeletally, with people. And so we need to take ownership, I think, of that, that part of this sexual health component. And I think, you know, it's easy to sort of sit back and be like, oh, you know, let these. No, now it's time for us to stand yes. up and be like, no, the, the, we know how all this tissue works. We know how all of it integrates and works together. We, we can't be looking at things separated out anymore. People are global people. Their mind and their brain works together with their floor. We need to show that through the things that we're doing and not make poor statements or, you know, hey, you know, oh, these are separate things, you know, desire and arousal and, you know, the brain and the floor and all these things, they're so integrated. And if we don't start talking about it, it, like we get lost, you know, I had someone say, oh, well, if you have a hypertensive pelvic floor, you shouldn't have sex. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Like, this is kind of like, what are we talking about? You know, mm-hmm, I mean, how mm-hmm. do we get blood flow to an area? I mean, we get blood flow to an area by actually utilizing the area, right? So, yes, I, th- so I love your work and I, oh. I'm so thankful every day because I oh, feel I'm like, so you know, I just feel like it opens us up to being like, hey, let's use all of these things to help, especially in North America, like, you and I were talking earlier to like actually change sexual health for women in our country and in North American region so that people actually have the joy and pleasure. This is really what it's about. 100%. We would, will, you know, women can rule the world and I'm not a feminist. So, you know, if my husband was here, he'd be shaking his head. But I think that, that we can do a lot if we can just move forward and continue to let this be a part of our driving force because that pleasure is is you know elizabeth is an orgasm a day keeps keeps the doctor away kind of person so i don't know that i agree with that but you know it depends on what kind of orgasm you're going to have i suppose you you know whatever and that's another topic but yes i think that it's so so important and we are i i've said for forever because we're already there with these women treating other issues in the pelvis, treating their incontinence, treating their postpartum problems, treating their bowel issues. We are the ones, we have the honor of being able to spend an hour with them every week. Not everybody, but lots of people, 45 minutes to an hour with women every week. We develop relationships with these women like no other practitioner does because we develop it from a psychological perspective as well as from a physical perspective. We can help lead them down that path. They'll tell us things they don't tell anybody else sorry that's just the way it is because of how we're able to work it gives just gives me goosebumps just to talk about it i think it's just such an incredible incredible place to be so cool well thank you d so much uh for Uh, having me uh, you know being with me today i really appreciate it and i just want to um tell everybody to you know the the 
um, retreat that she does uh, twice a year for any of our pelvic health therapists, for any people who want to dive deeper and learn more uh, about all this. It happens with Dee and with her business partner, Elizabeth Wood. I went to the retreat. It's absolutely incredible. It's an amazing experience. Um, learned so much. Changed the way I please look for her book, The Pleasure Prescription. It's on Amazon. And it's just a great way for you to start working through maybe your own journey. I want to encourage people every day. Sexual health, as Dee said, is all part. It's in our brainstem. It's a needed thing for our quality of life. And I just want to encourage you to participate in it and to, if you don't know, and if you're not sure, and if you've had traumas, please seek out help because you're not supposed to live without this component of your life. Yes. Wonderfully Thanks, said. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Perfect. Great. Okay, good. We're done. Woohoo. Yeah, Dee. Thank 